A subscription to the China Africa Project's email newsletter is like getting a daily China Africa intelligence briefing delivered straight to your inbox every weekday at 6 a.m. Washington time. You'll get an in-depth review of everything going on in politics, trade, tech, culture, and more. And we don't just focus only on Africa, but also the Middle East and what China's doing throughout the Global South. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. After that, subscriptions are just $7 a month for teachers and students and $15 a month for everyone else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we do have to put a little disclaimer up before this show. You may not be with us for the entire broadcast, in part because you are having to endure load shedding. And for those of you who are not familiar with the dynamics of load shedding in South Africa, it means, well, basically, there's just brownouts throughout the day. So, Kobus, we will understand if mysteriously you disappear from our program midway through. <laughs> you are on about 24% battery power on your computer right now, so we appreciate you making the effort to, to join us. Also, quickly before we get started today, uh, just to shout Shout out to Kenyatta, our newest member of our Patreon community. Uh, we've had some great back and forths already this week. If you would like to join our Patreon community, we have this great weekly digest that we're now providing. We're doing Zoom calls. We have uh, updates throughout the week, and we're also providing a, a, a podcast extra every month just for the Patreon community. Lots of cool things going on over there. Go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Okay, so let's get started today. The big news of the week since we talked last time is we now actually have a confirmed date for the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Ministerial Conference that will take place uh, starting November 28th, which is a Sunday, and then it'll be Monday, November 29th, and Tuesday the 30th. This, of course, was a tightly guarded secret up until last week, but now they've come out and they've said it. Now, we knew this was coming because all fall and leading up to the past two or three weeks, there have been these China-Africa forums that are popping up, and this is the it happens every single time there's a FOCAC meeting, there are youth forums, there are uh, think tank forums, there are media forums, and a very interesting one also took place just last week, which is the first ever China-Africa Beidou System Cooperation Forum. That took place in Beijing. Get this, 600 representatives, 50 African countries were there. Eight ministers, eight ambassadors also attended. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Beidou Navigation Satellite System, I'm not surprised you're not familiar, but it is something you really need to know about. It is China's answer to the American GPS system, which all of us in our cars in the U.S., we have GPS. And then in Europe, it's the Galileo Space-Based Navigation System. 
But in many ways, it's actually much larger. And Japan's Nikkei newspaper, they did this research, which they found that uh, out of 195 countries, Beidou covers 165 capitals, far more coverage, actually, than the GPS system does. Now, Beidou is part of a much larger jigsaw puzzle that's playing out and that's being assembled. Over the past five, 10 years, we've started to see this really escalate. The building of ground-based mobile telecommunications networks in Africa and around the global south by the likes of Huawei and ZTE and others. The deployment of massive smart city initiatives in more than 80 countries using technology from Huawei, iFlyTech, and Hikvision. The laying of thousands of kilometers of undersea internet data trunks, the creation of large cloud data centers in places like Senegal and Djibouti, Morocco, and many other places, again, throughout the global south. All of these together combine to form China's digital Silk Road. And I know I'm missing a number of other components to it. It's vastly more complicated than what I have laid out here. It's even more expansive. And we're already hearing that this is going to be a key theme at the upcoming forum on China-Africa Cooperation Conference that, again, as I mentioned, will happen at the end of this month. Both Chinese and African officials have said that technology and the digital Silk Road in particular is going to be a key pillar for the future of China-Africa relations and the conference. So we've already gotten a preview of this, Kobus, and we've been covering this in our daily news coverage for the site and in our newsletter, that the Chinese policy banks have backed away from financing these huge mega projects for railroads and for hydroelectric dams. These are the kinds of things that they've been financing for the past 15 years, and it's led them into a lot of debt problems, not just in Africa, but elsewhere. They're not getting repaid. They're pulled back. We've talked about that with the folks from Boston University. So they're backing away from railroads and ports, but what they're not backing away from are new Huawei-built data centers in Senegal or the Smart City Program in Burkina Faso. And there's likely a lot more of these smaller projects that are in the pipeline that, say, cost in the tens of millions, maybe the low hundreds of millions of dollars, but not in the billions anymore. And Cobus, as Africa looks to recover from COVID-19, the focus on digital is only going, in my view, going to get stronger. Yes, I agree. Like at the, at what we saw over the last year or so has been, you know, even though African economies have really been suffering from COVID, the e-economies in Africa have been exploding. Um, we we see it a lot in South Africa. Like during during the last two years, e-commerce um, has has really really expanded very aggressively, um, and we, and streaming and other economies have also really expanded. So this is a very big demand for further connectivity, and I think China in a lot in large respects is pretty much the like what like the main player and in some places the only player in this field. Well, let's get a perspective on the Digital Silk Road. There's an excellent new book that came out about it written by Jonathan Hillman, who is a senior fellow with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He's also the director of the Reconnecting Asia project there. And again, as I mentioned, he just published a a new book, The Digital Silk Road. China's Quest to Wire the World and Win the Future. Also this week, he published an article in Foreign Affairs, Huawei Strikes Back to Beat China on Tech, America Must Invest in the Developing World. Jonathan, you've been very busy. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us again. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. And thanks for covering these issues, too, for um, quite, a, quite a long time. And I've learned a lot from your coverage. Well, we appreciate it. And uh, we're interested in, in what you've been writing. You wrote in the book. I mean, you were 
unmistakable in, in, in your language in the book that the DSR, the Digital Silk Road, could chart a course towards a new kind of empire. First, lay out what you see is the DSR. What is it? And then tell us what you meant by saying how it could transform China's status as a global power. Thanks. So I, you know, I think about the Digital Silk Road as being essentially the tech dimension of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And, you know, it was announced initially in 2015 as an information superhighway um, and then formally called the Digital Silk Road in 2017. But the digital part of the Belt and Road has basically been there all along. Sometimes it just hasn't been as visible. So, you know, digital infrastructure is parts. Uh, it's often incorporated into ports. Fiber optic cables are often laid when uh, roads and, and rail projects are built. It's just easier to do it at the same time. But for the reasons you mentioned, the digital dimension is now, I think, accelerating and becoming proportionally more important than some of the earlier transport and energy dimensions of the Belt and Road. And I think the stakes are, in some respects, even higher because you know the world is just increasingly dependent on these digital systems that uh, because they're not as visible often we often take for granted um, so you know just the fact that you and I are able to have and Cobus are able to have this conversation right now um, is thanks to subsea cables right that carry 95 percent of the world's international data and that's just one part of the digital silk road where China was you know essentially entirely dependent on foreign companies little over a decade ago for those systems, and now has the world's fourth provider of them. That's a pretty dramatic acquisition of, a, of an important capability, one that's important not only commercially, but also strategically. And we see that in other areas too. So this is really a set of activities that in one sense has been there uh, for, for quite a while, but in another sense is intensifying. And I think increasingly important because of how reliant we are on these systems. What I couldn't figure out from the book, and there were really two main themes that I took away from it, was one, you were warning about the risks and dangers, at least to U.S. power, of the rise of Huawei and the Chinese technology ecosystem. And at the same time, you seem to be sending this message to folks in Washington, D.C. that they better get off their asses and do something before it's too late. And it seemed like a warning both to people in D.C. that inaction is going to lead to, to defeat. And those were the two parallel tracks that it seemed to be going on at the same time throughout the book. Talk to us about the tension between those two. Well, you know, I think in order to have action, you need to understand some of the consequences of inaction. And I think we, we're starting to see some of those consequences um, especially in the developing world where as many options haven't been available. And so, you know, we see cases like Papua New Guinea with a data center that looks like it had been essentially designed with intentionally poor security, you know, not enough budgeted for op operations and maintenance, you know, and so an investment that should have been helping a country instead becoming a liability, a security, security vulnerability. There are other examples in Pakistan, um, in Kenya, and elsewhere. And so I think those are sort of warning signs and a reminder that these risks are not hypothetical. I mean, they're, they're real. The wake-up call for Washington is that if you're serious about competing with China economically and technologically, you can't only have that competition in advanced markets. It's not enough to just go to other mostly democratic countries and try to persuade them. In some sense, that was the first round of the competition 
around 5G. You know, Washington went to partners in Western Europe, um, Australia, Japan, elsewhere. That should have been actually relatively easy, right? I mean, we're talking with countries that have more resources, countries that are democracies. It wasn't incredibly easy. I mean, it, you know, a lot of progress has been made there, but it was still, uh, I think, more difficult than anticipated. And those arguments are not going to persuade the rest of the world. We need to care about the rest of the world because that's where the, the growth is, is going to occur in, in the coming decades. Um, and so it's a, for me, it's a, it's both of those things I think are true. I also, though, you know, in the book, I also, I hope that some, some are reading it in countries where these projects are being done and um, that they're rethinking, you know, some of the risks too. You know, it's supposed to be useful for that audience as well. You've laid out that the stakes are so high. You even said that the network wars have already begun, but yet it really doesn't seem like, and, and with all due respect, many people in Washington are listening to your counsel because they're not taking the developing world that seriously. I mean, look at the, the travel schedule of the Secretary of State. He hasn't been to Africa once, but he's been to France I don't know how many times. Look at the emphasis that they're placing on combating China, but doing it with Australia, doing it with Europe, doing it with the UK, but they're not talking about doing it with the developing world. And frankly, B3W, Dalip Singh, the deputy national security advisor, seems to have this you know, lone one-man one effort going to convince countries, three countries in South America, two countries in Africa, and he's coming here to Southeast Asia pretty soon. That's not really a whole-of-government approach. Given that the stakes are so high as you lay them out, who is listening to you in Washington? <laughs> so I, you know, I, I'm a little more optimistic. So far, it's been a pretty positive reception. I think people are eager for not only the the warning and the you know better understanding of the stakes, but they're eager for practical advice about you know what to do, how to make more alternatives available. I think you did point out an important and encouraging development, which is you know having the deputy. Uh, U.S. National Security Advisor for International Economics going and listening to countries where we want to be more competitive. I think that's a really positive initial step. And I think I think a little more listening could have been useful in the past. I also think there's an encouraging development with the Quad, which has you know not only agreed to a set of principles around technology, but also has a uh, coordination group that they're um, using for infrastructure now. So I think that's, that, that's positive. And then finally, the U.S., Japan, and Australia have been working more closely together. Um, and so one example, one really tangible example of that cooperation is a uh, subsea cable to Palau that they've co-financed. So, you know, that's a, it's a $30 million project for them to co-finance. That's a drop in the bucket for what the world needs. But I think there's some important lessons that they're that they've learned from going through that, you know, strengthening some habits of cooperation. There's still a ton to do, um, but I'm encouraged to see this on the agenda in those forum, uh, in those fora. But also the the U.S. EU uh, Trade and Technology Council also has a working group on ICT that's supposed to, among its other responsibilities, is supposed to help increase the availability of development finance. So I think that's another avenue. So you have these kind of a constellation of these different efforts. It's a, it's a huge coordination challenge, but I do see the issues getting more attention. And that, that is really the first step. I do see where you're, you're optimistic on that, but it is, 
there's a big difference of scale here. I mean, you talked about a $30 million undersea cable. The Chinese are just finishing up now connecting the peace cable, which is the Pakistan-East Africa connecting Europe cable, which just made landfall in France. And the scale of that vastly dwarfs what's going on in Palau. And then we just talked about the digital Silk Road. The fact is, there are facts on the ground now that are in the billions and billions of dollars. I mean, Beidou is a good example of that. And the United States is going on listening tours. We're 20 years into this now. And the United States is is struggling to figure out what is their technology offer when they go to Kenya or Senegal and they say, Huawei's dangerous, Chinese tech is dangerous. And what you come back in the book talk about a lot is that the United States has not had an answer for what to do. And there was this assumption that market forces would succeed in fulfilling the need of technology. But as you point out, in the United States, that did not work in rural communities because market forces tend to migrate to wealthier countries and wealthier populations and wealthier markets. So what is the answer to the enormous scale of the digital Silk Road that the United States now has if, in fact, this is a network war that is underway? So there is an important private sector dimension to this. And I think that there are, you know, there are some examples of U.S. companies that are actually being more entrepreneurial, maybe a little more risk-taking than their predecessors were in the 1990s. So, for example, and some of this isn't happening under, you know, some official U.S. banner. So, for example, Google last month, right, major announcement for investment in Africa, I think a billion dollars over five years. You know, that's not happening as part of some, um, you know, U.S. initiative if that was a Chinese company, I'm sure it would be associated with a Chinese state initiative. And so I think part of the challenge and opportunity here is to try to build from those types of private sector-led initiatives. Even that example I mentioned of the that Palau subsea cable, that cable is going to be possible because it's being connected to a much larger cable that is being paid for by Google and Facebook. And so, you know, th- there's an opportunity here probably for the government and governments, plural, U.S. and allies, to try to, um, you know, build more of those kind of off-ramps and, and to provide some incentives to help attract investment, to help expand activities into areas where the timeline for return might be a little bit longer. So I, I, I do think that there's some positive activities. I mean, another example there's a, there's a whole there's a set of US companies that are at the forefront of providing satellite internet you know really uh, high speed internet from low earth orbit satellites you know they have a product that could be quite appealing in some rural and remote areas but um, it might need a little bit of support in order to be affordable so i think there's an opportunity here to do more partnerships it it makes the coordination challenge even greater i realize that but you know, I, I don't want to leave people with the impression that the U.S. as a whole isn't doing anything in this area. Yeah. You, you write, let me quote from your book here. You said, most developing countries see information security as a secondary concern rather than a vital need. Their choices ultimately come down to price. That's why competing with China's state capitalism will require the U.S. government to think of as much about economics as security do you get the sense that they are thinking about economics and they are actually willing to put dollars behind it much the same way that the Chinese state has in order to fill the gaps that the private sector won't do? I think that there's an awareness of that challenge and 
I, I think that when we talk about these issues, sometimes people have in mind uh, 5G because that's, in a way, that was kind of the first battle um, of this broader competition. And 5G is important, but it's an area where the U.S. is playing catch up in some respects. But that's not true in some of these other areas. And so, you know, we do have, in some cases, alternatives already available. And it's a question of trying to make them a little more affordable um, rather than trying to, you know, come up with an alternative and make that alternative more affordable. So I'm thinking about things like cloud computing and e-government services. You know, we have strong players in the subsea cable space and satellites, as I mentioned, also in some smart city areas. And so I think it's really about trying to come up with uh, attractive packages. You know, the U.S. government is not set up in a way to um, have, you know, it doesn't have the foreign uh, financial firepower that, um, you know, China Development Bank and and Exim Bank have. Um, So that's not going to happen soon. But we do have um, a private sector with um, an interest in investing when, you know, the risk reward ratio is favorable. And so I think that there, there are efforts to try to think about ways to mobilize more of that, that private sector investment and also to pool resources with partners and allies. So, I, you know, I think then collectively um, we can do a little bit more. Again, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm, I'm struggling because the United States right now in Africa is 0 for 55 in persuading any country to abandon Huawei, even Iswatini which for 24 hours agreed to sign on to the clean network earlier this year and then bailed out after 24 hours. And so that was quite comical. But the the offer has not been accepted by, I think, anybody in, well, certainly not in Africa and, and, and even in South America, it's been limited at best. And you said that fear alone will not stop China's digital Silk Road. And I keep coming back to this question of scale that everything you're talking about and that you've laid out in the book is aspirational. There's some great things in the pipeline. People are starting to wake up to the threat. But at the end of the day, 70% of Africa's 4G network was built by China. Cloud data centers are on the ground. The peace cable is now there. There are realities that are there which are so large in scope that is it not too late because we're just starting to mobilize? And as you said, the U.S. government isn't even optimized to be able to fight the same way that the Chinese are doing and our relationships with our European partners are not always aligned on technology, as you outlined in the book. So it does seem like it's a, a really a much bigger challenge for the U.S. to match the Chinese, given the late start that they have. Yeah, there is. I think, you know, the, your point on, you know, Chinese providers having built 70 percent of Africa's 4G networks is something that I think reminds us that, you know, the longer we wait, the more unrealistic it is to expect partners to switch providers because there are these costs that they've incurred. And it's not easy just to go from one provider to another. In in the 5G context, a lot of the equipment is built on, on top of existing networks. Um, it's not even often easy to switch uh, you know, from one cloud provider to another. Um, that's why customers often just end up sticking with you know, the, the first provider that they try. So, that, so I think that is one of the reasons why we can't afford to, you know, to, to wait this out. But I also think in, in other respects, this competition is, is just getting started. You know, by 2025, only about 15% of the world's mobile users are going to have access to 5G. So you know, 
in, in that respect, that race, if you wanted to call it a race, is, is really just getting started. You know, Africa has 17% of the world's population, but only about 1% of the world's installed data center capacity. So there's massive future need there. And, you know, who, who is going to provide that capacity? That's, you know, I think something that's still to be decided. And I wouldn't make the metric for success on the U.S. side a pure, you know, in total ban on all, everything made that comes from China. I think it's unrealistic to expect that. I think, and I think this is true in the infrastructure contest more generally. I think it's in the interest of a lot of countries to try to pit different offers off each other to try to maximize their their benefits. Um, but I think the types of outcomes that the, the U.S. should want to avoid is allowing countries to become overly dependent on a single provider, you know, and, and that that dependence creates issues. Um, so winning isn't necessarily, you know, it's not zero sum in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. But there, but you're, you're right that the balance is, is not in uh, currently in the U.S.'s favor in Africa. I wonder if one of one of the other issues faced by by the U.S. and and other Western partners is whether their their brand has been a bit tarnished in the global South. You know, following following a long you know years and years of, of a lot of surveillance following the you know du during um, the war on terror. You know, the the use of of Israeli, Italian, UK, and American kind of software for surveillance in in many African countries, and also um, you know kind of the 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 involvement of, of of platforms like Facebook platforms, for example, in disinformation um, and the kind of weakness around kind of the, the you know those kind of enforcements. What do you think that the effects of those kind of ongoing kind of problems have been um, in you know kind of in in this equation between between Chinese and, and American tech in the global south? I think you're right that there are, there there have been you know reputational challenges. Uh, or as you referred to it, sort of, you know, a, the brand has has maybe taken some hits. Uh, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, depending on how much resources you have access to, I just think a lot of decision makers are going with, you know, what whatever is going to be the most affordable, practical solution for them. Maybe that's naive and I'm not, you know, maybe someone in marketing would disagree with me and say that, you know, really the brands are, you know, the sort of brand impression is driving decision making. But I just, I, I kind of think that it, it really is affordability and that's the, that's the kind of primary driver. Um, so if you're not competing on that level, you're not really in the game. And even if you do have some reputational challenge, I mean, I think China has demonstrated this. If you're if you're offering something that looks affordable, and if you're making attractive promises, you can compensate for, for those challenges. Yeah, the book focused mostly on the digital Silk Road in the hardware context. It didn't focus as much on the policy and governance aspects of it. And I'd like to get your take on this because one of the things that we've seen in Africa now is not only the adoption of Chinese again, hardware standards and technology, but also now in places like Nigeria with the Twitter ban that happened earlier this year, uh, senior leaders said they were directly influenced by how what China's done. Ethiopia earlier this year said it wants to create parallel apps 
much like the same way that China's created WeChat and and Alipay and other parallel apps to the you know international apps or Facebook, WhatsApp, and things like that. And, and then in Senegal, which is the best example of their national data policy, is very much modeled on China's internet governance policy and this concept of cyber sovereignty. And so it seems like the Chinese digital governance model is gaining traction in many parts of the world, including in Africa. Uh, what's your thought on that? And how can the U.S. and, say, democratic countries respond to that? I think it's a that's a, a real concern. And I think it's something that is, uh, you know, having other countries follow China's lead is not only it not only lends legitimacy to to their approach, but it also creates commercial opportunities for them. Because, you know, when they have other countries who are buying into their narrative about how storing data locally makes it more secure, you know, regardless of who's taking care of it, that generates demand to build, you know, more more capacity locally. They're often able to do that, packaging the hard infrastructure and the services and bringing the financing and to do it in a, in a really range of scales and to do it on do smaller projects that larger U.S. providers might might not be interested in doing and the U.S. government might not be interested in because they don't want to perpetuate this data localization trend. So I think it's something that is really both in China's own political, domestic political interest, as well as its international commercial interest. And so what do you do about it? Well, I think like we need to think about tools and incentives. You know, on the incentives front, I do think that we need to be using some of the um, financial firepower we, we have through um, institutions like the DFC to do more data center activities. You know, the, the DFC has one data center deal in Africa with CDC Group. And I think it needs it needs to do it needs to be more active in that space. It could, it can do more. I also think that the U.S. could be more active in the trade arena um, and especially on digital trade issues. And so, bringing countries into a process to agree on rules for digital trade could also help push back on some of those trends. I mean, ultimately, though, you will have some governments that are going to want to emulate parts of, of China's approach um, for, you know, their sort of domestic political uh, purposes. You're not going to be able to persuade everyone, but I think there's probably a little bit more we could do in terms of incentives and then mechanisms on the trade front. But when we look at the internet governance model, and and, and, and again, this is countries are trying to figure out who they want to be. They're almost like in an adolescence trying to figure out what kind of person am I going to be when I grow up? Because all of this is so new. And they look at what's happening in the United States. And I'm not entirely convinced that our internet governance model is an example for the world. I mean, what we've seen come out of the Facebook papers is where Zuckerberg made all the decisions for profit at the expense of social stability where weapon, you know, Facebook has been weaponized to divide us as people. And where, you know, you, you quoted Shoshana Zuboff in Surveillance Capitalism, where the extent of privacy violations by the likes of Google and others is very disconcerting for a lot of people. And so when we look at the, at the example, the different alternatives that are out there, is the United States really the best example here to go to other countries and say, follow our lead, and when in fact we ourselves are struggling with these very issues. Yeah, I th I, you're you're right that there's 
more than a little room for improvement on the U.S. side as well. I don't think we should be claiming to have, you know, perfected the model. Um, and in fact, you know, among among other things, I, you know, in the book suggest that, um, you know, the U.S. should have its own national data privacy law. We have peers who have more developed approaches, peers and partners who I think we could learn from and actually having our own our own data law would help remove barriers to cooperating with them. And so absolutely we should we should try to improve our own model, but I but I also don't think I don't think that acknowledging, you know, those flaws is the same thing as uh, suggesting that China has a, a superior model. No, it's not suggesting that China's a superior model, but it just makes that conversation a little more difficult with, say, African stakeholders when we're saying, don't use the China model, and the African stakeholder will look to you and say, well, should we use your model? Or what should we do? How do we piece together a governance policy that best suits us? And maybe it's a hybrid of different pieces that they put together but it just seems difficult from the point of view of the United States to have that conversation when we're struggling with those very issues ourselves. Same, by the way, on race relations, on treatment of minorities. I mean, there's so many issues that we ourselves are struggling with, but yet still almost, you know, I feel like the conversations in the foreign policy community in Washington are, are like they're out of 1975, when the United States was the unrivaled superpower, there wasn't the internet, we were the force for democracy, and people didn't see the flaws quite as clearly as they do today. And that just seems like it makes it more difficult to have these conversations. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think some of this will come to the fore, you know, during the democracy summit, right? And, you know, I think the the U.S. has been, you know, some of the people organizing that have been honest about the fact that, the, you know, one of the reasons to have this is that the U.S. has been having its own challenges. So, look, I'm I'm a proponent of, you know, acknowledging and addressing them, yeah. those those challenges uh, and not trying to, as, as you say, pretend like it's, you know, the 1970s. Yeah. Well, let, let's kind of look to the to some of your solutions. And one of the big solutions you talk about, and you spend a lot of time towards the end of the book, is about the need to build coalitions between like-minded countries. And this is some of the rhetoric we're seeing associated with B3W as well, which is like-minded democracies. Uh, it's problematic for a lot of people in the global south, especially in frontline countries like where I'm in, Vietnam, uh, which is definitely not a democracy, but very much an important country for the United States to confront China. So it makes it very complicated if you say only like-minded democracies, not you, but the U.S. government, and uh, but let's talk about this, the role of coalitions and what you think that can be done to, if not stop the rise of Chinese technology, at least maybe frustrate it or slow it. Yeah, I think that building a coalition is a requirement here, just given the fact that China presents a challenge of scale. I mean, it's got a massive domestic market. Its companies have you know preferred access to the world's largest market of middle class consumers. The government has access to an ocean of data. The Chinese government, you know, even though it's often inefficient and wasteful, is able to direct resources in a way that some of its competitors are not. And so I think in order to, to compete, you know, we, we are looking at trying to bring together countries who have common interests. And I wouldn't limit it to democracies, but I think when you look at sort of what the initial group should be and you know the sort of group that is maybe most naturally aligned in terms of interests you know they are democracies they're wealthy democracies most if not all of them are US treaty allies 
But I think that it would be a mistake to have the focus only on democracies, you know, for the reasons that you're pointing out. And, and also, we can't have the focus be only on advanced economies. And so, you know, I think one of the one of the real bridges that needs to be built is to the developing world. Um, I think India is a country that's, you know, probably, you know, one of the most important swing states in that respect. Really great great potential, but a lot of work to do too. And in terms of, you know, its economic policies, in terms of how the government has used technology. And then I, th- I think we need to, we need to be offering a, attractive solutions for developing countries writ large. You know, if you've got, if you've got, um, you know, an attractive product, then I think we should be going to anyone who's interested. Yeah. The, the core of the coalition though would be the wealthy advanced democracies, namely in Europe, the France's, Germany's, those, those big economies. And the problem there, though, and you pointed this out in detail in the book, is that Europeans still see a dichotomy between economic engagement with China and political engagement. That may be blurring a little bit more now than it was, say, five, ten years ago, but they still feel that they can engage economically and then put on a separate track the political issues. Clearly in the United States, those those two are now overlapped and blurred and put into a blender and look like a smoothie. The problem is, though, is that the Chinese have made it very clear to the likes of the Germans that should they take action on Huawei, for example, that their very valuable auto business could be in jeopardy. And I think Volkswagen sells almost, if not a half of all of its global volume in China, close to it, a serious amount of its, of its car volume is sold in China. And the German Marshall Fund issued a paper earlier this year saying, if we're going to pursue this idea of pushing the Chinese on Huawei, are we prepared to have a Volkswagen that is half its current size? And I think that's a really sober way of looking at it. And it gets to the challenge of building a coalition when the Chinese have incredible leverage over European countries and have been very effective at communicating that fear that they can use that leverage and they're not afraid to use that leverage. To me, <laughs> to me, to threaten a partner, a trading partner like that, um, just really highlights why you shouldn't want to rely on a supplier from that country for your critical infrastructure. I mean, if that's how they're going to treat you, why would you want to become more dependent on them for activities that are going to become even more important in the future? And I, I understand. You know, I mean, look, I'm not I'm not running for office in Germany, so, so I get to. Yeah, there's I, short-term I, needs <laughs> versus long-term needs, and the short-term is the pol- the politicians who are running for office in six months <laughs> have a different set of criteria than the longer-term security issues. They do, but this is also it's also a question of you know what industries are we going to care about here, and you know are you going to let the auto industry dictate the future of Germany? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that's that's I don't know if that question needs to be answered or not. But the auto industry, I mean, you saw what Obama did for the auto industry in the United States when it was up against the wall and they moved heaven and earth to bail it out. So auto industries typically in most countries are backbone industries. And if China can pinch a nerve on that backbone, it seems like they're going to be effective on that. And that might thwart the the formation of any effective coalition in in in, in my view i mean that it seems a challenge at least yeah i think that there are probably growth opportunities for other industries too and you know in the in the tech space in particular and 
So I think the message, if you were going to make the hard decision here and say, you know, we need to not do this, you know, not only to protect German security and sovereignty, but also because, you know, we want to be competitive in, you know, these these industries of the future and, and, you know, talk about, you know, wanting to have uh, German suppliers and, and companies be more active and not being, you know, re- overly reliant on Chinese companies for those products. Did you see the new Pew data that came out this week? Who believes that the U.S. is no longer a good model of democracy? And they went to advanced economies, and the numbers are shocking. In the median number across the G7 and the advanced in Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Italy, Greece, Spain, UK, Europe, those countries, is 17%. In Germany, it's only 14%. Singapore, it's 11%. Japan, 14%. Spain, 22%. The point here is the numbers are very low in terms of who sees the U.S. as a good model of democracy. And I was thinking about that as I was reading your book in terms of forming a coalition, because if public opinion in Europe and in the Asian democracies is not aligned with the United States as a model of democracy, can that frustrate the ability for the United States to lead this campaign against Chinese tech? Well, I think it's, I think it's a challenge if you make democracy the organizing principle. And I'm, I'm not sure that democracy needs to be the organizing principle. I think it's naturally, um, that's, that's the core group, just given when you look around and you look at economic power and you look at overlap and common interests and, you know, existing relations that we have and mechanisms for cooperation, um, those are all, those are wealthy democracies. But when you start to think about what's the next, um, you know, what's the next ring outside of that, um, or the one beyond that, you know, I, I'm not sure that that needs to be the, the organizing principle. I think, you know, a, a, a vision that's focused on economic openness and resiliency might be more compelling and more widely applicable. Yeah, interesting. Uh, just very quickly before we go, China is one of these issues that in our divided society today, we don't agree on anything except China. I mean, red and blue, Democrats, Republicans seem to align on the issue of opposing China. And so I'm curious that in the Biden administration, he's carried over a lot of the Trump policies uh, on China. Uh, Certainly things like B3W are inspired in many respects by what Prosper Africa was and some of those other initiatives. If the House of Representatives and the Congress switches Republican and if the White House returns to, say, the Republicans and possibly Donald Trump, do some of these initiatives continue or do they get derailed? I think they continue, and I think they continue because some of them, um, as you're pointing out, already have longer histories. Um, you know, one example here is uh, the Blue Dot Network, right, which was started in the Trump administration, but really hadn't been fully operationalized and is being expanded and developed now under the auspices of the OECD. You know, I think some of this might be branding. So if things, you know, get get different, get different names then, then you know that's often common, but I think there's a there's a pretty core interest here for the U.S. in being more active in this area, and clearly a demand globally for that as well. So let's wrap up our discussion with the key takeaway that you want people to to consume from your book. What's the message that you're trying to send with with the book? So you know one of the one of the messages is that if the U.S. wants to be competitive with China technologically economically and strategically, 
it needs to compete in the developing world. Well, that's a good message and one that we like on this show. Uh, the book is out. It's a fantastic book. I read the half of the Kindle version and I listened to the other half on the audio version. The audio version, the voiceover guy you got, he sounds like the voiceover guy for HBO. It's amazing. <laughs> he, uh, you yeah. know, like on Hard Knocks. <laughs> he sounds like the guy on Hard Knocks. And I kept thinking every time I turned it on, I'm like, am I listening to Hard Knocks? So that was fantastic. So very, <laughs> very good. The, the book is uh, The Digital Silk Road, China's Quest to wire the world and win the future. It's available on Amazon, again, in audio, Kindle, hardback, not softback yet, I don't think, but nonetheless, it's an excellent book. I really recommend it. It's, it's a part of the China Global South dynamic that, again, is poorly understood given the scale of what the Chinese are doing. Jonathan has laid this out and has laid it out also in his previous books as well on this issue. So uh, Jonathan is definitely a guy you're going to want to follow. Uh, Jonathan, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, where can they find you online? So they can find me on Twitter at Hillman, which is H-I-L-L-M-A-N-J-E, uh, or they can head over to Reconnecting Asia. .csis.org. Fantastic. We will put a link to the the book, also to his Twitter, and then also you have this great email newsletter that comes out on a lot of China issues, obviously, in the Global South and things like that. Where can people sign up for your email newsletter as well? So they can sign up for the, that newsletter. It's called Field Notes, and it's at Hillman dot substack.com. Okay, so all lots of things to do. We'll put the links there. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Unfortunately, Cobus, as expected, the ESCOM got the better of him and his power went out, so he wasn't able to join us. But we really appreciate you for taking the time to join us. And uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode with Cobus on the line as well. Until then, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. continues online head over to facebook.com slash china africa project to share your thoughts on today's show for more information about the china africa project go to chinaafricaproject.com. project.com